We all know that sound. In everyday life, many of us don't think about how a clock works. We only focus on it showing the right time. For a clock to work properly, many different cocks interlock. Our global economy is structured in a similar way. Raw materials are mined in one part of the world, manufactured into a product somewhere else, and then sold to different parts of the world. In the process, companies and entire countries depend on the smooth running of supply chains. This is true not only for high-tech goods such as phones and cars, but also for our food. And if one of the cogs in the clockwork of food production no longer runs intact, the effects can be enormous. Remember COVID-19, climate catastrophes or the current Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. In such moments, the world stands still for a moment. Is there any way to prevent stoppages? And if so, who has the power to do something about it? And where is the best place to start? This is Food for Transformation. My name is Katie Gallus. I am a journalist, a moderator and expert on development policy and excited to be your host. In this podcast series, we focus on agriculture and food systems. We put our current system to the test and ask ourselves, how can sustainable and forward-thinking food systems ensure a healthy diet for everyone on the planet? We're getting to know people and projects from around the world that bring us closer to a possible answer. And in the first episode, we ask, how can we feed the world in times of multiple crises? And how can our food systems become more resilient? Political crises. Over the summer, one issue dominated the headlines worldwide. The military coup in Niger. In July, the military under General Abdurrahman Tiani arrested the democratically elected president Mohamed Bazoun. Since then, the military has ruled. This is not the first violent coup Niger has experienced since its independence in 1960. The situation in the country has long been considered unstable. Corruption and high unemployment are part of everyday life. Niger is one of the poorest countries in the world. It is affected by jihadist terrorism, consequent to the Libyan invasion. This is Ibrahim Asane Mayaki, former prime minister of Niger. He now serves as the African Union Special Envoy for Food Systems. The African Union is an association of 55 African states that aims to promote peace on the continent and advance democracy and social development. Because many states do not accept the coup, they impose sanctions against Niger. And as a result, hardly any food makes its way into the country. Before that, 20% of the country's grain needs were covered by imports. Despite the fact that three-quarters of the population works in agriculture, Niger is among the top countries suffering from hunger and malnutrition. Ibrahim Ayakis and the African Union wants to tackle this by focusing on agriculture and development work. Therefore, the member states signed the Malabo Declaration in 2014. It was also about land. It was about empowerment of small-scale farmers. It was about gender, inclusivity, about fertilizers, about inputs, about nutrition, etc. 
So Malabo did open also the way to a food systems approach because the food systems approach is by nature multi-sectoral and systemic. So you see there is a trajectory of strengthening the instruments and all these instruments have two main objectives, increase production and increase productivity. Increase production in order to reduce dependency from imports and increase productivity, which are yields, in order to manage properly the land component of food systems. The member states at the Malabo Declaration set two goals. Reducing poverty by half until 2025 and ending hunger for the same year. Fact is, a lot of member states are behind, including those who are not subject to sanctions. But why is that? The reasons are more diverse. For example, economic uncertainties due to changes of government, infrastructural problems or conflict-ridden areas, and so on. Hunger is also growing with the rise of inequality, which is pushing many people to the limits of subsistence. This is also reflected in the figures worldwide. We have 3.0 billion people that they cannot afford a healthy diet. This is Stefanos Futiu from FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. He is director at the Office of the Sustainable Development Goals, which were set by the UN in 2015, and include fighting poverty and hunger, fighting for gender equality and quality education. Fortieu was one of 250 partners who was invited by the German Federal Ministry for International Cooperation and Development to Berlin this summer. Representatives from governments, NGOs, academia and private sector discussed the transformation to a food-secure, resilient and sustainable future. If we don't accelerate this disease, and this is exactly the same number of what we had in 2015, so it's going to be a zero progress in a period of 15 years. In recent decades, the number of people suffering hunger worldwide had initially declined, but crises have pushed the long-term goal back into the distance. Among other things, the COVID pandemic has been responsible for hunger being on the rise again. In the fight against the virus, many countries imposed curfews and people were unable to work. Especially in the Global South, many people are employed in the informal sector, for example as laborers, street vendors or domestic helpers. Only very few can fall back on savings. Tourist flows and investments failed to materialize during the pandemic. Governments went into debt to take in aid packages. In many places, schools were closed with long-term consequences, but also immediate consequences for children. For example, many children rely on school meals. And for many parents, no classes meant that they could not count on a daily meal for their children at school. Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine is a crisis that has repercussions far beyond Europe. In response to the war, the EU has implemented sanctions targeting Russian goods, however, with the exception of agricultural and food products. Nevertheless, the agricultural sector has not been entirely exempt, as the EU has imposed import bans on specific fertilizers. Russia and Belarus are the leading exporters of fertilizers. But the trade flows of Russia and Belarus with third countries, for example developing countries, are not affected by EU import restrictions. 
According to updated EU guidelines, EU operators are allowed to facilitate shipments of Russian fertilizers to third countries via EU territory. And this being said, it is important to acknowledge the potential indirect consequences of sanctions. Excessive caution, for example, can lead to over-implementation due to concerns about penalties, negative public perceptions or customer preferences. With the beginning of the war, fertilizer prices skyrocketed in April 2022. This sudden increase was primarily driven by uncertainty surrounding fertilizer exports from Russia and Belarus, stemming from the conflict itself and disruptions in Black Sea trade routes. Consequently, this price surge triggered a severe affordability crisis in several African countries, impacting their ability to secure essential fertilizers. The good news is that, while fertilizer prices remain elevated, they have fallen significantly from their 2022 peaks. Most African countries have been able to reduce their reliance on Russian and Belarusian sources by diversifying their fertilizer imports and turning to alternative suppliers, such as Saudi Arabia and Algeria. By bolstering domestic agricultural production and reducing reliance on external sources, Africa can enhance food security, but also mitigate the potential adverse impacts of global price fluctuations. How trade relations will develop? It is difficult to assess. But one thing is certain. The demand for food will increase as the world's population grows. But crises will also increase, says Stefanos Fotiu. Also, we need not to forget the biodiversity and the climate crisis that they were there a long time before other crises, and unfortunately, they will stay there. So I don't think that we see that the crisis will be actually going lower. So we need to be more resilient and we need to focus on both mitigation and adaptation. Which brings us to the climate crisis, our most imminent planetary threat. Agri-food systems are a significant contributor to climate change, accounting for over 40% of global emissions. At the same time, agricultural production is increasingly affected by climate change. We return to Niger, where I want to tell you about Fureyaitu Saidu, a woman who has recently lost her husband and is mother of five children. She grows tomatoes, onions and lettuce. Niger is part of the so-called Sahel, a land belt in the upper third of Africa that stretches from the west to the interior of the continent. The temperatures rise to 40 degrees Celsius in summer. And the semi-desert and savanna landscapes are characterized by thorn bushes, shrubs and sparse grass. In some areas, there are only two months in which there is sufficient rainfall. Otherwise, there is drought. Science predicts the extreme conditions will enhance. And according to a new study of the World Food Programme, the number of people in the Sahel without regular access to safe and nutritious food will rise to 48 million this year. That is four times higher than five years ago. Let that sink in. Four times higher than five years ago. Though the situation's getting worse, Objectively, Furiae Tusaidu is better now than before. Ten years ago, things were very different, she says. She didn't have much to live on here in Niger. 
Furireju is one of thousands of farmers who are supported by the World Food Programme. In exchange with the government and partners on the ground, the organization works to ensure that technologies and know-how are provided in order to prepare the country for climate change. Furireju wants to create a secure future for her children and for her grandchildren by cultivating community gardens. She does this as a member of a cooperative, where members share the work, exchange ideas, and also share the risk. Currently, Furireitu harvests surplus crops that she can then sell at a local market. She also receives training from the World Food Program, which she and other women within her community pass on. These trainings range from certain tree planting techniques to soil regeneration and nutrition tips. Furireitu's project illustrates that sustainable agriculture benefits producers. It secures their livelihood, but they also provide their immediate surroundings with affordable and healthy food. The immediate communities benefit from local and fresh food and are less dependent on imports. This opens up new perspectives for expanding food cultivation locally and generates a long-term source of income. All these aspects have the potential to reduce poverty, ensure food security and promote well-being of the population. Farmers account for 40% of GDP in Niger. The new techniques ensure that this will not only be the case now, but also in the future. It has the power to ensure that less people have to migrate because of climate change. Floods, droughts, species extinction, temperature changes and changes in animal habitats and livelihoods. With its manifold effects, climate change exerts an enormous influence on our food not only in regions that are already characterized by weather extremes, such as Sahel. On the other side of the world, in Cambodia, there is a community where women and men farmers prepare for crises. Community resilience is the key word. Community resilience in this context means that people and the system have the competence to manage shocks and climate disasters and build stronger and prosperous communities. The best management practice serves a safety net for rural poor, maintains a multifunctional agricultural landscapes, and adapts to fluctuations in rainfall, floods, and dry periods. This is Pikong Wu. She's a project manager and development specialist of World Fish, an international non-profit organization that, among other things, conducts research on sustainable aquaculture and fish farming. In her home country of Cambodia, Pikong has improved community fish rearing centers, in short, CFRs. The system works like this. In the dry season, when rice fields are dry and disconnected from the main water sources, such as pond canals and other associated waterways, fish migrate to take refuge in the community refuge pond for up to six months. Then, in the early rainy season, fish migrate to the rice wheel to breed and spawn. The rice wheels in Cambodia are open access, where people can catch fish freely. In Cambodia, fish is the main source of protein for the population. It ends up on the table four to five times a week and provides children with important omega-3 fatty acids. In the dry season, however, fishing in the retention basins is prohibited. 
This ensures that there are always enough species of fish. Everything is the responsibility of the respective community. The community develops its own management plan through community participation. The management plan, which is normally a three-year plan, includes creating a perennial shoot for fish in the rice mill landscape, maintaining aquatic connectivity to allow fish to migrate between the reshoot and nearby rice paddies, uh, raising awareness on uh, conservation and protection, patrolling, gender-inclusive governance, climate change mitigation, while additional practices may address nutritional and clean water needs of the community. At the beginning of each project, local authorities and experts from forestry, agriculture and fisheries participate and provide technical equipment. In the last 10 years, more than 140 CFRs have been established in Cambodia. Worldfish documents their progress and concludes that this approach has increased fishing by more than 70%. The system has another positive side effect. While the fish catch was subject to fluctuations due to droughts and floods in previous years, food security is now guaranteed. What's more, farmers catch enough fish to sell at markets. Picong's vision is to publicize CFR in other countries as well, everywhere where similar landscapes and government policies can be found. To adapt projects like CFR across borders, three essential actions are needed, says Stefanos Fortiu. Convene the countries and the stakeholders to see where is the progress and where are the gaps. Socialize the powerful role of food system transformations for SDG accelerators and advocate for massive action at scale to create multiple benefits for people, planet and prosperity. Of course, it is important to adapt to advancing climate change and to be prepared when disruptions occur. But it's equally important for Stefanos Fortiu to confront crises and find ways to mitigate or even prevent them towards sustainable agriculture and abundant healthy food, towards a society in which hunger and malnutrition no longer exist. Achieving a real transformation is a universal effort. Countries such as Niger or Cambodia already play a role as pioneers. However, food systems are far away from being sustainable on a global scale. In the global north, for instance, Extensive agriculture, meat consumption and the importation of food exceeds the boundaries of sustainable behavior. So it becomes clear that resilience of our food systems isn't something any country or region has perfected so far. However, as the pressure of multiple crises is unlikely to decline, we should focus on finding new solutions and perspectives. We will talk about some of them in the upcoming episodes of Food for Transformation. This was the first episode of Food for Transformation. We learned how different crises threaten our food systems. We learned about projects that present solutions to address these crises. See you all in the next episode, when we talk about why repurposing agricultural support is a multi-billion dollar opportunity. Subscribe now and learn more about the transformation the world desperately needs. I see you soon.